We all have our journeys, some long, some short, some harrowing and some easy. What kinds of songs does God think we need for our journeys? For hope, for trouble, or for joy? Join us as we learn to sing God's songs from the Psalms. Recently, I uh, started redoing my kids' rooms. And we've been actually redoing, you know, a room at a time in our house. But I noticed something really funny when I was redoing the kids' rooms because it made something glaringly obvious to me. So we redid our kids' rooms, painted them, um, set up new beds or changed their beds around. You know, everybody ends up in different rooms, has the stuff that they need. But then we realized that because we'd redone that, and that had been some of the main play area for them. I needed to then redo and set up a play area in the basement. So one project kind of created the context where I needed to do more projects. And I, when I finished the bedrooms, I like stood back and I looked at them and I was like, these look great. I love these. Um, but then that lasted for a very short period. And then I needed to redo the next room. And so like everything that I fixed created something else that um, I wasn't satisfied with. I don't know if you've ever gone through life that way with the thinking, well, once I do this, I'm going to be happy. So I was like, once I redo the kids' bedrooms, then I'll be super thrilled. But then I redid the kids' bedrooms and it was the basement playroom that needed to be redone. And then redoing the basement playroom reminded me that the house had a whole house vacuum that hadn't been used in probably 30 years. And that needed to be taken out of the ceiling of the basement. And so then that project created another project. And so everything that I thought, oh, I'm, let me stand back. I'm happy. Look at this. Ended up just creating this kind of desire in me for, well, that really wasn't enough. I need to do something else. It's not... It's not necessarily ba a bad thing for us to desire like the next thing, but so often what happened in redoing bedrooms happens in my own heart in other ways. You see, like I'll often think, well, when I get to this point, then I'll be happy. When I accomplish this goal, whenever I get this much money, whenever I have this much success or respect, whenever I have whatever I get, whenever I do, maybe you're that way. Maybe you go, well, once my kids are potty trained, then everything's going to be a lot easier at our house. Or once my kids are in school, then everything's going to be okay. Once my kids reach whatever milestone, you go, that, this is going to be the thing and that I'm going to be okay. Maybe Maybe it's something in your job that you're like, once I reach this point in my career, then I'll be happy. Or it could be once I reach retirement, then everything's going to be okay. I'm going to be happy. So, so much of our lives are spent thinking this is going to be the thing that does it. But it never really gets us there. Like no object, no accomplishment, no person gets us. So we live with this deep-seated like expectation that happiness is just around the corner as long as I take the right road. So what, what does God's word have to say to that? 
that tendency that we have to constantly look for more, for better, for something else to make us happy. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 132 that really deals with that that aspect of expectations, where our expectations for happiness are. Go ahead and turn there with me. Psalm 132. This is a longer psalm than we've been studying lately, so I'm just going to read the first uh, several verses here at the beginning. Psalm 132, a song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Let's pray. God, as we open your word here, help us, help us to set our expectations on your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 132 is an interesting one because it's a little bit longer and at times it feels a little bit removed from where we are. The first section of it that I just read is really this kind of calling from history, David's uh, oath or promise to find a dwelling place for the tabernacle, for the Ark of the Covenant. So in 2 Samuel 7, you can write this down or make a note, that is the context for this song, or the beginning of this song. So 2 Samuel 7 is a story where David is now the king. And when the people want to worship and meet with God, they go to uh, this tent called the tabernacle, and they would worship there because there was what they called the Ark of the Covenant there. And that that place above that was called the, the, the throne of God. And his feet were there on, you know, his footstool uh, is the way they would describe it, was the mercy seat or the top of that. And every year they would come in worship and put blood on the Ark of the Covenant as, a, as kind of a reminder that our sin has to be covered in blood. So they would come and they would meet God there and they would worship God in that temple, or I'm sorry, in that tent, in that tabernacle. And David becomes king, the second king of Israel. All the hopes of Israel seem to be coming true. They finally have a good godly king. David is like fighting battles to try and make a place and to make peace. And he captures the capital, what men makes the capital of the city there in Jerusalem. And he's got a home there. And he realizes, I have a home. And God God doesn't have a, a home. You know, God's, God's ark of the covenant, the place that we meet with God is still in a tent. And so he says, I'm going to, I'm going to make a temple. I'm going to make a dwelling place for God here in Jerusalem. The, the prophet Nathan says, no, or he says, yeah, go ahead. That, you know, do whatever it is in your heart. And then God comes to Nathan, the prophet in a dream and says, no, David is not going to be the one to build a, a dwelling place for me. God tells Nathan that because David was a man of war, whose hands were covered in blood, that David should not be the one to build the temple, but that his son would. And then God made a series of promises to David. So it's this, this really strange thing where David says, I want to build something for God, a dwelling place for him. 
And God turns and says, no, David, I'm going to make a dwelling place for you, giving this promise that, uh, that, that God is going to build David's line, giving us this indication that one day a, a son of David, a great-great-grandson of David, would be the great king of Israel who would make the peace that God's people need. That's the context for Psalm 120, or I'm sorry, 132. That's the context here. That, so when he says, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house, skip down, until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. That's the context in that David has set his heart to build a dwelling place for God. Then we get to verse 8, which is, says, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The, giving this indication, okay, now the temple is built. David's son Solomon did build a glorious temple and the Ark of the Covenant came there. And so the city of Jerusalem, the temple that Solomon built and the Ark of the Covenant becomes this place where heaven and earth meet. And so this song is a song about that calling. Remember when David promised to do that? Now we're living that reality. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant, David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. So this is a song about the establishment of God's dwelling place with people. So that as the, the, the pilgrims on their yearly journey to go and worship, at the temple. They would be calling this to mind. Remember David's promises. Now this is true. God, be in your dwelling place. And may all of these promises, may these things come true. It's this, the establishment of God with his people and these expectations of, of what that's going to mean. It's where they say, oh, arise, O Lord, and let your priest and let, let your saints shout for joy. The second section of this, starting there in verse 8, is then like God's oath to the people. So they're praying, God, arise, go to your resting place. And then verse 11 says, the Lord swore to David a sure oath and begins walking through God's promises. So remember, I said the second Samuel 7, David says, this is what I want to do for God. And then God comes to Nathan in a dream and says, no, this is what I'm going to do for David. This song does that same thing. It's talking about the estate. Okay, now we're living in the reality of the temple. And it's like calling to mind God's promises to the people. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. Listen to these promises. I will abundantly, uh, this is those are my words. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. And so this, the, this psalm is organized into David's promise, the establishment of that promise, and then God's promise to David and to his people. The, these are these two sections setting up these expectations. And what I want to show you from this psalm is that this psalm calls us to form our expectations around God's presence. 
So as we begin to form our expectations and our hopes and our dreams and our plans, the call in this is to form them around God's presence. I want to show you three expectations that we have to develop from this. First, God's presence brings his promise. God's presence brings his promise. Verse 8 like bring like brings like is the center of this song. Verse 8 is the center of it. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you in the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The, the Verse 8 is the center of the psalm because it's teaching us that to, to pray from the midst of that worship. God, we need your dwelling with the people for us to have joy. God, for us to have righteousness and salvation. God, we have to have you. There is this, the expectation in this is God. God, we need you if we are going to get the promise that we need. Arise and go to your resting place. The the question that I had when studying this psalm is, why do we need this one? Why do we need this psalm? You see, all of these other psalms have been walking through different scenarios on the journey of our lives, on our orientation towards God. And so they're like snapshots of scenarios. But this is one where the people would sing it on their way to worship. This this calling to mind, the temple has been established. But what we need is God's dwelling with the people if we are going to realize the promises. We, We need God's presence. And I'm reminded of John 14 that echoes this same idea, but then focuses it clearly on Jesus for us. You see, Psalm 132 is the the people of Israel reminding themselves and calling on God and saying, God, we need your presence for us to have your promises, for us to have joy and for us to have peace, to have what we need, to have the things that we long for. It's your presence where that is found. John 14, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is taking and echoing that same idea that the thing that we need is the presence of God. And Jesus is the one who is preparing a place so that we can come and be with God because of Jesus. That This is an echo of this idea. We have to begin to wrap our minds around the idea that the promises and the peace and the prosperity and the things that we desire in life are wrapped up in God's presence. Jesus tells us in John 14, it's going to come when he comes and brings us to the place he has prepared for us. It's a place with him, with his father. This psalm is this song that we sing, orienting our hearts to this idea that God's presence brings his promise. And so we must begin to set our heights, uh, I'm sorry, set our hearts higher than the places that we normally do. There is nothing we can buy in a store that we can order online. There is nothing that we can accomplish in our jobs. There is nothing that our kids can do. There is no respect that we can gain in the world that is going to satisfy us like the presence of God can do. 
And so worship becomes the heart of our Christianity as we begin to set our expectations in a higher place. And so Christianity doesn't say just get by with less. Why can't you just become poorer? And why can't you just like give up on the things of the world? Why can't you just like punish yourself enough that you can become righteous? The call of Christianity is not to say, I want to make do with less. It's I actually want to expect more. And there's nothing in this world that can satisfy me like the presence of God is going to satisfy me. Historically, Christians have often described it as like living before the face of God, orienting our entire lives towards seeing his face that we will one day see. That one day we will actually get to dwell in his house, eating at his table, reigning and ruling with him. The call of Christianity is to form our expectations around God's presence because God's presence is what brings his promise. Notice that transition in this psalm. David made promises. The temple is now established. God in your presence. Then it moves into God's promises. God's presence is what brings us his promise. The second expectation we must begin to develop is that we need a king so that we can dwell with God. That to begin to expect, God, we need a king so that we can dwell with you. Begin to set our hearts on an expectation for a king that can make that happen. The reason we know that is because verse 10 says, For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Anointed one is a, is a term for the, the king, the Messiah, the deliverer that God would send. And they would describe the king as the anointed one because the king would be anointed as the king. And so verse 10 says, it's this prayer. God, we want your presence. We want your presence here with the people in the temple, in the capital city. And we need a king or else we'll lose all of it. You see, in, in, that, in that world, if they had no king, and if a rival kingdom came through and wiped them out, they would destroy their worship and destroy their temple. And so the prayer of the people is God Give us a king to keep and to establish so that we can worship you, so that we can see your face, so that we can dwell with you. God, we need a king. Do not turn your face away. One commentator said that prayer for the king always goes with the presence of God. We need a king, a mediator, a deliverer, so that we can dwell with God. Now, with hindsight, as we look through the scriptures, we can begin to see that fuller picture. The original singers of this just know, God, we need the king strengthened so that we can worship you. Now we can look and say and know we needed a king in Jesus so that we can dwell with God. We need a deliverer who can be good enough, who can establish God's dwelling with the people so that nothing can threaten it. We must begin to set our expectations regarding our relationship with God, our ability to worship God, our ability to see God around a king so that we can dwell with him. You see, it's so easy for us to try and like manipulate God by trying to do enough good things or put space in between us and our last sin, our last failure, that thing that we have been trying to overcome. We try to put enough distance or we try to put enough obedience. We try to put enough stuff in between us and that, that we can feel good about uh, being in God's presence. When this Psalm tells us we actually need a king to 
to make a way, a secure way, so that we can dwell with God, so that we can see God's face, so that we can worship God. This this psalm is this beginning to sing. We have this temple, but it is still insecure as long as we do not have a good enough king. Graham Goldsworthy comments that when we read the Old Testament, what we find is a series of expectations. You see, the the focus of the Old Testament begins with Adam and Eve and the whole world and ends up narrowing to Abraham and to a family. And beginning with that family is this constant expectation of deliverance and of peace and of kingdom. And so when Abraham's family is caught in slavery in Egypt, and they begin to look forward in expectation to deliverance, they get to the Exodus, God delivering them out of Egypt, through the plagues, through the Red Sea. Then it's like, great, now we are in, now we are in the kingdom. Our expectations have been realized. But there's this these dashed hopes as they fall into disobedience and realize God delivering them from Egypt from the Red Sea, doesn't deliver them from the disobedient hearts that they had. And so they begin to expect more. God, we long for the day that we have the land because when we have the land, we can dwell with you. And they get to that point and their expectations get dashed as they realize that even in that land, their hearts are oriented towards disobedience. So then the expectation becomes, God, we will be able to experience the kingdom when when we have a king. And so there's this expectation, when we get a king, then they get a king, and it's Saul. A king who doesn't want to obey God, wants to set up his own kingdom. And so it's this story of constant expectations rising and then judgment and No, that wasn't good enough. But then the expectations rise even higher. Now we have a good and godly king in David. And then David commits adultery and he commits murder. No, that won't be it. And the expectation when the worship of God takes place in a temple and Solomon builds a temple. And yet Solomon's heart gets turned away from God. This constant rising in expectation and fall, this disappointment, keeps getting bigger and keeps getting bigger into the prophets until one day we look in the New Testament and we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament expectations. Graham Goldsworthy points that the expectations for God's people constantly get higher. They get dashed, but they grow. God wants our expectations to grow higher. And this psalm, where they think that they're just singing it about David or about Solomon, or they're singing it about Rehoboam, or they're singing about one of the other kings, those are not good enough. Their expectations keep getting dashed, but the reality remains. Our expectation has to be that we need a king so that we can dwell with God. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is that king. And our expectations have to be not, well, when I can obey enough, when I'm rid of this this, this indwelling sin, these things that grip my heart and control my life. No, the expectation of our hearts has to be, God, give me a king so I can dwell with you. I can do it myself is not the message of Christianity. A king can do it for me is the message of Christianity. The king has done it for me is the message of Christianity. So we must actually orient our entire lives around Jesus, who is the king on our behalf, who makes a way so that we can dwell with God. 
So our expectations are formed around that king's presence. The third expectation we must develop is that God is the one who does the work. God is the one that does the work. Verse 11 says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. That verse begins a series of statements of God saying, I will, I will, I will. Listen to it. Out of the, I'm sorry, one of the sons of your body, I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Here we go. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her, clo- her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn. That means strength to sprout for David. I will make strength sprout up for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed, the Messiah, the deliverer. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This psalm calls us to form our expectations around the idea that God himself is the one who does the work. That's what we saw in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David says, I'm going to to build a house for God. And God's like, no, I'm going to build a house for you, David. Because that is the pattern of the Bible. The people try to deliver themselves and God delivers the helpless people. That is the pattern. We need this psalm. Because even in the establishment of the temple, the people needed to be reminded God's presence brings his promise. We need a king so that we can dwell with God and God himself is going to do the work. We have to, we need this psalm because we need that idea. This directs us to God's presence and our expectations and beginning to go, is my deliverance going to come? Because I have somehow mastered something. Because I've somehow done something. Because I've delivered myself. Or because God is doing a great work. And he's going to keep doing what he's always done. We need this psalm to remind ourselves. God is the one that says, I will, I will, I will, I will. I will do this. I will do this. Because we need to remind ourselves on the journeys that we walk. That God is the one who does the work. It's what we see when we look in the New Testament, when we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. We, we could read the end of that and go, so that we could become the righteousness of God. And so often in our temptation and in our weakness, we start to put all sorts of stuff in front of that. God, look at how I've obeyed. Look at how what a good husband or a wife or mom or dad or friend or employee I've been. But that's not the message of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. God is the one who does the work. It's what we see in Romans chapter 5. This says God demonstrates his own love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is the one who does the work is the message of Christianity. That's the way it's always been. That's the way it's always going to be. We start our Christian lives that way and we continue it that way. And so as we begin in our hearts to set our expectations on God's presence, that's going to bring an end to poverty. That's going to mean that people have the food that they need. As we begin to set our hearts on a king who is going to bring justice, who is going to bring a whole whole life peace to the world. We have to realize that that God is going to be the one that does the work because that's the way Christianity has always been. Where do we see Jesus in this? 
I hope by now you see it all over this passage. We look at this passage and we see Jesus in the temple because Jesus in the New Testament went to the temple and said, if you tear down this temple, referring to his body, saying that now the dwelling place of God and man is no longer a building built by human hands. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the temple so that we can dwell with God and we can know his presence as he walks with us and promises to come and bring us to dwell with him forever in his house. We see Jesus throughout this passage when he talks about a king because we know the ultimate fulfillment of this promise to David that he would have a king, a son as a king who would sit on his throne forever. Jesus is that king. And so the dwelling place of God and man is secure because the God-man Jesus is that king. We see this. We see Jesus throughout this passage when we look at the work that God is doing. That Jesus is the one that God does that through. I will, I will, I will, I will. We see that in Jesus' ministry and in Jesus' life. Jesus is the one that takes a few loaves of bread and feeds thousands of people. Jesus is the one who clothes us with salvation. Jesus is the one that causes the saints to shout for joy. This entire passage points us to Jesus when we begin to look and see Jesus in these images. So maybe if you're listening to this today, you can know that God's promise that brings his, I'm sorry, God's presence that brings his promise is yours because you have trusted in Christ. Maybe you're listening to this and go, what does that mean? I haven't done that. How can I know that I have a king who makes me secure to dwell with God? How can I know that God is going to be the one that does the work on my behalf, bringing all of his promises true? The way that you can know that, I tell it in four parts. The story of the Bible is that God made the world God made the world and he made it good and he made Adam and Eve and he said they are very good and he gave them he, he gave them a task to shepherd and rule the world, to subdue it. And God would be the great king and they would be the little king under him. And Adam and Eve said, no, we will disobey that rule because we want our own kingdoms. We want to live our own ways. We want to rule the world for ourselves. And Adam and Eve and all of their children after them, including you and me, have turned our backs on God in that. That brings us to the second part. The the Bible says that God promised to punish sin, Adam and Eve's sin, and every person after them's sin, with physical death and spiritual death in hell forever. We have separated ourselves from God saying, you will not be king over us. And so then God has promised to treat us as his enemies. That, That brings us to the third thing. Instead of leaving us there, God himself came as the man Jesus. Living the, left death, uh, living the life that we should live, dying the death that we should die, and being raised to new life in our place so that all who repent of sin and trust in Christ can be, escape the judgment that we deserve as God's enemies and instead be welcomed into his family. Which brings us to the fourth thing, the response that, that makes that story our story, that makes Christ's promise our promise, that makes, that makes Christ's promise our reality, that, make, that means that God does the work on our behalf, standing as the king so that we can dwell with God, bringing all of his promises true. That becomes ours as we respond to that offer in repentance and faith. It's a turning away from sin and a trusting in Jesus alone to save us. 
That is how that story becomes ours. That's how we actually form our expectations around God's promise. As we take Jesus and realize that all of God's promises come true in that. And so the call in this is to form all of our expectations around the Jesus who gives us all of God's blessings. We get a, we get a taste of it now. And we get the rest of it. We get the, we get the full amount when Jesus comes back or we die and go to be with him. And so this psalm is a, this call to form our whole lives, all of our expectations, not around accomplishing something or getting some respect, not around gaining possessions, something in the world that can make us happy, but instead forming all of our expectations, all of our hopes and dreams around Jesus. So I want you to imagine me. What's different if we begin to to live that way? What's different when we begin to form all of our expectations around God's presence? Then that means that no person and no object and no accomplishment then is going to be the thing that makes me happy. And that sounds like joy. When there's a dad who doesn't need people or situations or possessions to, to make him happy, satisfied, going through life peaceful. Instead, it's actually God's presence. And I have that independent of everything else. That, that's that's a, a different kind of young adult who's going through life going, what's coming next and what's going to make me happy and how do I get ahead? No, actually, none of those things ultimately are going to establish or found my happiness. My expectations aren't grounded in those things. My expectations are grounded in the presence of God that I have through Jesus Christ. That that sounds like kind of a freedom to go through life without the weight of everything else having to make me happy or without me having to somehow make my life something. Then we're free to begin to go through life and to try some things, to venture on some things, to walk with God and say, God, what do you have for me here in this? Because the pressure is not all on me now. The, 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 the expectation of my happiness doesn't depend on these things. What does that look like for a church community to begin to go through life and say, the society around us, the money that we have in the bank, the attendance that we have on a Sunday, the respect that we have in the community is not the thing that we are living for. We are living for the presence of God and we have that independent of how everything else around us goes. That's a, that's a good news kind of church, not that's, that's re- requiring the, the world around us, whether it's our town, state, country, to somehow legitimize us and make us happy. Help us walk with God. Instead, we actually form our expectations for the church around the presence of God given to us in our King Jesus. That sounds awesome. Let's pray. Jesus, as we open your word, form our expectations around Jesus. Help us to see Jesus on these pages of scripture. God, get this this down deep into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.